Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. And the word of the sovereign Lord reads this way. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. The late R.C. Sproul once wrote of this particular text. He says, We come into the kingdom only by admitting that we have nothing to give and that we can, and all we can do is rely on Christ for grace and forgiveness. But once we are in the kingdom, we continue to come to him admitting the same things. We never lose our need to depend wholly on Jesus. So these three verses right here that we find in our text today are perhaps some of the most overlooked verses in the entire Bible. And I say that is because um, there's just several reasons for that. First of all, these little verses right here are sandwiched in between two very big teaching sections in the scriptures that Mark has written. Uh, you have on the one hand Jesus talking about marriage and, and divorce, which is a subject that's so big we spent three weeks talking about it. And on the other hand, at the other end of this, you have Jesus talking to the rich young ruler who comes to him asking how he gets eternal life. Right? And this story actually ends up reminding us that there are things that can get in, our, in, our, in the way and become idols that keep us from Christ. Again, a very important story in its own right. So you have these two really big stories on either end, and right in the middle is just these three little verses. Secondly, the reason why we tend to overlook it is because this topic um, is, is about children, and Jesus has already talked about children in, in just a few verses before in chapter number 9. Right? Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And so it would seem that this topic that he's revisiting then seems to be Redundant. He's coming back to the same thing he said before, that what we, what we applied in the text before can apply to this, and so you can basically almost skip over, it would seem. And then third, um, there's no location mentioned here, and there's not really any people that are being identified. It just says they were bringing children. It doesn't really spell, spell out who they were, whether they were Jews or whether they were Gentiles or who they were. In fact, Mark, in his classic style, sometimes, like in this little story, doesn't really clutter up the, the, the story with, with a lot of extraneous details. And because there's no explanation or any connection to a, a specific location or a group of people, uh, it would seem that this section of text is almost like filler, almost as if Mark is just mentioning something in transition from one big story to the next. And, 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 Right? And so because of that, these three reasons, this text is really oftentimes overlooked by many Christians and theologians. And many people, including me, right, for many years tend to read right through these verses, moving from one section to the next. I don't, can't tell you how many times. I've read them, but I've just kind of just, I have not really paid attention to them because you go from one big heading to the next. But here's the thing. Even though this is one of the most overlooked texts in the Bible, this is actually, we will see, one of the most important texts in the entire New Testament. The truth contained in these verses are foundational to really how we even understand the gospel itself and how we understand Christian life. 
Not to mention what Jesus communicates here about the value of children and how that's shaped the Western world and really should continue to shape how we see kids today. But not only is this one of the most overlooked passages and one of the most over, um, I mean, most, one of the most important passages of Scripture, but this is also one of the most misunderstood and misapplied Scriptures as well. And the primary reason for the misunderstandings um, and the misapplication is because we tend to read scriptures like this from the perspective of our own culture. Right? We read these scriptures and we try to interpret these scriptures as 21st century Americans, right? not as 1st century Jews or 1st century Greeks. And because of that, we look at this text and, as the, and we look at these verses, either they don't seem that important to us or we just simply read into the text our cultural assumptions, which then causes us to interpret what is being said here in ways that the author never even meant, and in ways that the people that he he was talking to initially would have never even understood. You see, the only way to understand a text like this, um, and why this is so important, is to take the time to do the work, and and, and to, to ground the verses in the context, which, by the way, is work. It takes work to do that. Specifically, the cultural context, the historical context, and also the immediate textual context. And, and I know, I know, right, there's some things that I talk about over and over again, like context. Right? I talk about context a lot. But the reason why I do that is because it's important. In fact, um, the first rule of Bible interpretation is just that, context. What is the context? And, and, and because of that, I will probably talk about context and bring this subject up over and over again, probably as long as God's going to allow me to preach here. So you'll just know, there he goes again, about context. But what we're going to see here in this text is how vitally important it is to read and understand every passage of Scripture in its original context. So turn with me again to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be, again, verses begin in verse 13. And as and as we're as we're getting that way, uh, I just want to just remind you of where we are in the story. Like we have really covered a lot of ground over the over the over the last year, and it's actually been you know quite a, quite a couple of months since we've really kind of come back to the narrative itself. See, Jesus has just completed his ministry in the region of Galilee, and he has shared the gospel with with both you know people that are Jewish and Gentiles. He's gone to Jewish areas, and he's gone to Gentile areas, and he's proclaimed the gospel. And he has performed, for all of those groups of people, many mind-blowing miracles, including healings of all manners, blind people, deaf people, you know, lame people. He's cast out demons. He's raised a little girl from the dead. Right? He, he fed 5,000 Jewish people. He fed 4,000 Greek people. Right? Then he walks on water, and many, many, many more things like that. And his popular, as a result, is growing, and it's at an all-time high. And so everywhere he goes, people are flocking to him. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to hear from him. Everybody wants him to touch them. And as we saw in the last text, Jesus has then left the region of Galilee for good, and he's on his way into Judea, and is now making his way towards Jerusalem, and he is making his way towards his inevitable appointment with the cross. Jesus' story, as we can see here, is beginning to accelerate and is moving quickly to its climax. And that right there, then, is the historical setting. But it's also important to understand that, that we're in a section of the Gospel of Mark that begins 
and ends with Jesus miraculously healing someone who is blind. That's not accidental. Right? This section begins with Jesus healing a man who was, who was blind, and he initially regained some of his sight, but not all of it. And then Jesus touches him again and fully restores his vision. And then this story ends with the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And in between these two miracles is of, of, of sight being restored, we have the apostles clearly struggling to see the full reality of who Christ is, and they're struggling to see the true, that true greatness in the kingdom of God is not about your position, it's not about your power, it's not about your authority, it is about hum- humility, and it's about service. Jesus basically makes that very clear. And the apostles, though they are growing, are still struggling with spiritual blindness. Right? They are, they're struggling to overcome the hardness of, of their hearts. And they keep getting themselves sideways and in trouble with Jesus, even though he clearly is trying to teach them what they need to know. And if you remember, it begins with Peter. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Right? Because you didn't figure it out on your own. God showed it to you. Right? And then right after that, he tells them about the fact that he has come to die on the cross. And what does Peter do? He thinks he's smarter than everybody else, and he rebukes Jesus and says, it's not going to ever happen to you. And what does Jesus do in response? Get behind me, Satan, is what he says to him. You're not thinking of things of God, but the things of man. Obviously, Peter has some psych, but not fully restored. And then right after that, Jesus shows his glory to Peter, James, and John in the mountain where he is transfigured. And, off, and coming off the mountain, Jesus finds his apostles have failed to cast out a demon from a boy. This is a task that they've completed multiple times. They've, they've cast out many demons, but they couldn't do this one. And the reason for that is they were walking, if you remember, in their own strength, not depending on the power of Christ, still struggling with that spiritual blindness. And then his disciples right after that begin to argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And, and he rebukes them and he tells them that greatness is about being a servant of all, including serving those who are considered to be the least important people in all of society. And then right after that, the apostles in their sense of superiority and, and their sense of, I'm better than, than these other people, they end up trying to discourage someone who has been casting out demons in the name of Jesus. You see, they felt that that since he wasn't an apostle like them, that he shouldn't be able to do that. He wasn't part of how they saw leadership and how leadership was supposed to be structured in the New Testament. And Jesus, again, has to set them straight because, again, they're still struggling with spiritual blindness. And so over and over and over again in this section between these two miracles, we see Jesus' disciples still slowly growing in their understanding of who Jesus is, but we see them still battling and struggling with this spiritual blindness and the old assumptions about who they think Christ is and what it means to be a part of the new kingdom. And Jesus has to continually correct them. And this story that we're going to look at is in this section here. Um, And we're going to see this exact same repeated theme of spiritual blindness in his apostles. So now, um, as we know from last week, Jesus and his disciples are now in the location of Judea. It doesn't say exactly where, but he's in Judea somewhere. And Jesus, if you remember, was surrounded by a crowd of people, as usual, and then he ends up in another conflict with the Pharisees, but this time it was over the subject of marriage and divorce. Uh, And then from there, Jesus and his disciples, after that confrontation, they end up leaving the crowd behind, and they go to someone's home, presumably 
after a long day of ministry, to eat and to rest and maybe spend some time together talking. And that's really where we pick the story back up in verse 13. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. Now, the the author, Mark, doesn't really specify here, but I think it's safe for us to assume that this is really a continuation of the same event. This is the same kind of evening. right? They went, they went to someone's home, and right after this confrontation with, with the Pharisees, they're, they're there hanging out, and Jesus you know, now further explains to his apostles what, what he meant by marriage and divorce, as we saw in the text last week. And, and while they're there, then people begin to do what? They begin to show up at this house to see Jesus. And this time it says they were bringing with them their children so he might touch them. And I think this really fits, I think, how we understand the rest of the story. Because all throughout Mark, what we see is, is Jesus, after a long day, goes to someone's home, and, and people just don't leave him alone. They just flock to the person's house in order to be near Jesus, to either hear him preach or to have them heal someone or cast out a demon. Even so much so, like, we remember the, the time when he was in Peter's house and the paralytic's friends came and tore the roof off of, off of the house to lower this person to Jesus. Even in the evenings in homes, Jesus had people always coming to him, right? But... Uh, Jesus was more than likely then at a friend's house in Jerusalem, or in Judea, not Jerusalem yet, but Judea, and people were showing up to see him. But but why, then, were they bringing children? Because this is not something we've seen before. We haven't really, like, I mean, this has not been specified by, before by Mark. They might have brought kids, but, they didn't, but Mark didn't make a point to record this. Why are these people bringing their children? Right? I think that's the first thing that we need to think about. Right? In that culture... Parents bringing their children to men who were seen as great men was a very common practice. Right? They were seen as some, you know, men of God, and they felt that, that, that their children needed to be touched and blessed by these men of God. People would often bring their children to men of influence, men of great power, men of high that were held in high esteem, so that they might touch them and bless them. And this is similar to the way what we see in the Old Testament, the way the patriarchs would lay their hands on their grandchildren and bless them. This was seen as a, you know, really almost, in a sense, as kind of like a supernatural kind of an experience. And so this was an important custom to a lot of people. And that's what we see here. People bringing their little children to Jesus so that he would touch them and bless them. Now, Mark, in this text, he uses a word for children that really is very, fairly generic and could actually be used of, of, of teenagers. But we can be certain of the fact that these are little bitty children that he's talking about here. They're babies. First of all, because of the fact that Jesus is holding him at the, at the end of this text, but because Luke, when he describes the same event, uses a Greek word that specifically relates to babies and infants. Right? And that's an important point. Right? What we're talking about here is not bigger kids. We're talking about babies and infants. These are little bitty children that are being brought to Jesus in order for him to touch them and to bless them. And, and I want you to notice what happens next. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Right? Now, notice, the disciples just rebuked them. They had taken it upon themselves to rebuke these people and drive them away. Now, why would they even do that? Why would they like, start driving these people away? Now, some people would believe that it's because, you know, like many of the times before, it was just a very long, exhausting day. That's what we see in Jesus' ministry. Jesus was a hard worker. He worked hard, and he worked long, and he would preach, and he would heal people and cast out demons up until late at night. 
In fact, if you remember early on in Mark, it was said that he didn't even stop to eat sometimes. That was the, the reason why his family thought he was crazy, by the way, is because he was working himself to the point where he wasn't even eating. And so many people think that the apostles were simply just trying to protect Jesus. They're trying to act as his, his entourage to protect him from the crowd and, him, and himself. Right? That, that they were just trying to help Jesus get some rest, which absolutely may be very well true of their, their intentions somewhere. Right? But there is another underlying reason here for their behavior. And I think it's a more fundamental reason of why they were rebuking these parents right, who were bringing these little children to Jesus. And, and, and the reason simply is their hearts were still hard. right? And they were still partially blind to what Jesus had already been teaching them. They struggled to understand that greatness in the kingdom of, of God was not about their authority, and it wasn't about their position, but it was still about service and love and sacrifice. And so here they're using their authority to do what they think is right. And I want you to notice, they don't ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, do you want us to just tell these guys to go away so you can get some rest? Hey, would it be okay if we just sent them home and tell them they can come back tomorrow? They didn't even ask Jesus what he thought. No, in their arrogance, they took it upon themselves to exercise what they believed was their rightful authority as Jesus' apostles to send these people away. Secondly, these apostles missed at least partially what Jesus was trying to say in Mark chapter 9. Remember in verses 33 and 34, Jesus confronts them about what? Them arguing over who's the greatest in the kingdom. And then in verse 35, he says to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. A very clear, concise statement of what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And if that wasn't enough for them, he then illustrates the point. It says, And he took a child and put it in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, Jesus made two very clear points here by that illustration. Number one, those who are great in the kingdom will value and will be hospitable toward and will be gracious toward and loving toward even the very least important person in the world. Right? And children, if you remember, were the least important people in that culture. Number two, Jesus makes it very clear by his example that he himself loves and values the little children. This is the part I think gets lost, is that Jesus is making it clear right, that he loves the little children. By the way, this verse and the one that we're addressing today is really the motivation for the song. What? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are... Precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children. He values the little children. But in spite of this clear and recent teaching, here are his disciples acting like bouncers, driving away these people who simply just want to have Jesus touch their little children. And so it seems to be very clear that the apostles are still struggling with spiritual blindness and their hearts are still hard to the truth that Christ is teaching them. But then I want you to notice how Jesus reacts towards them. There is a lot we can learn from this one little phrase. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. I think it's important that we stop here and linger there for a moment. Because this is vitally important for us not to overlook 
we could read that statement and then just keep going, but I think we need to concentrate on this. Mark says very clearly Jesus was indignant. Jesus was emotionally and visibly upset. Right? And the Greek word that Mark uses here for indignant can be translated as angry or displeased, and even one translation you know, translates it as furious. Right? In fact, the word that Mark uses here is a combination of two different Greek words. They means much and grief. It's taking two words, much and grief, and putting them together. In other words, Jesus in that moment experienced much grief in that situation. Right? Jesus was grieved. Right? He was deeply upset by this. Please do not lose sight of this. This is not a minor irritation on the behalf of Christ. Right? He's not a little bit frustrated here. Jesus is flat out angry by this behavior. He felt much grief about this. He was indignant. And this is important for us to see because we talked, in fact, we talked about this on our Bible study on Friday, right? But because there's something about us as Christians in America that misses the point about what, what's going on with Jesus here. Because for some reason, in the last half of the 20th century and the first part of this century that we're in right now, we Christians are being trained and we are being told by the culture around us and even many Christians around us that following Christ means that you must always, always, always be nice. If there is a message that people are telling Christians and Christians are telling other Christians is you need to be nice. That we must always be smiling. That we must always be patient. We should never raise our voices. That as Christians we should never be angry and we should never get upset. That we should never really be indignant about anything. We're told that we're to always be gentle and loving no matter what people say and no matter what people do. Otherwise, you're just not Christ-like. What are the words whenever you kind of get in confrontation with someone who's not a Christian and they want to cut you? What do they say? I thought you were a Christian. There's a whole debt before. Yeah, right? Because there's this assumption that if you're a Christian, then you have to give away all of your ability to defend yourself and you have to give, give up all ability to be upset about anything. You just need to just be happy all the time. That as Christians, we give up the right to raise our voices. That as Christians, we give up the right to be forceful at times. That as Christians, that we give up the right to look someone in the eye and tell them, you are just simply wrong about that. That, that. that you are headed for hell if you don't change that. That you are in your sin. That somehow, some, for some reason, it is wrong for us to say to someone, hey, you need to change. Right? You need to get a job. You need to grow up. You, you, you need to take care of your family. You need to go back to your spouse. It seems as Christians that we're not allowed to say anything that might possibly hurt someone else's feelings. Because if you do, then you're not really loving and you're not compassionate. You're not like Christ because you need to be nice. Brothers and sisters, let's, let's be really, really clear. That is not who Jesus was. Maybe I want to be clear about this. Jesus was not always nice. Now, he was not Westboro Baptist Church mean, right? But sometimes he was fierce in his anger. Sometimes his anger was overwhelming, like the time he made a whip and went and flipped over tables and drove merchants out of the temple. Right, that's not nice, Jesus. Or how about the times he calls the Pharisees vipers and hypocrites? Or how about the times that Jesus called Peter Satan? I mean, that wasn't very nice. And even here in the story, it says right here he's indignant. The words 
the words in Greek cannot be misconstrued here. It's very, very clear. He is angry. And he's angry with the ones he's closest to, by the way. He's angry with his apostles. Well, if Jesus is like that and becomes indignant, and we then are his followers are called to be like him, then we need to set aside the stereotype of what it means to be a Christian and embrace the truth that righteous indignation, righteous indignation is a good thing. To be angry and indignant for the right reasons as Christians is actually a good thing. Because why is he indignant here? He's, he's, he's indignant because, because the apostles ought to know better. right? They ought to know better in how they are treating these children. What they're doing is they're mistreating these that Jesus loves. That's why he's indignant. They and their self-important actions are mistreating other people, and because of that, Jesus rightfully is righteously angry about it. Righteous indignation is a good thing. To be upset for the right reasons is a good thing. To burn with deep anger A holy, righteous anger for the right reasons is actually a good thing because the root of that indignation, the root of righteous indignation, actually is love. See, this is where we get tripped up because some people want to say, because you love, you can't be angry. But I'll say that if you do love, you will be angry over certain circumstances. The reason why Jesus is upset is because of his love for these children. He loves the little children. Just look at the way that he he holds them and hugs them and blesses them in this text. He loves the little children, and and them being mistreated angers him. Jesus also loves, as we know, his father, and he loves his temple. And it angered him to see people defiling the temple and profaning the holy name of God. Jesus also loved sinners, and it angered him for the Pharisees to use their legalistic traditions to keep them in bondage. That's why he was so forceful with them. Righteous indignation is a good thing because it's rooted in in love. If you love your family, you will be angry when someone hurts them. All right? If you love people of all ethnicities, then you will be righteously angry about racism. If you love women as a man, you love women generally as, as people, then you'll be rightfully indignant about sexism. And if you love children, you will be righteously indignant about child abuse. Seeing children being abused will hurt you. It will cause you pain emotionally. And if you love babies, you will be rightfully indignant about infanticide, either inside and outside of the womb. Righteous indignation is a good thing because it is always rooted in love. And because it is so, it also prompts people to take right action. Righteous indignation, when it's righteous, prompts righteous action. You have to be careful because the Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. So we have a tendency to want to spiral off on the sin part of it. But we should use our righteous indignation for right action. And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus, because of his righteous indignation, drove the Pharisees out of the temple. He, because of his righteous indignation, called the Pharisees out for what they were, hypocrites. Right? Because... Of his righteous indignation, he healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath in spite of the fact that they were hateful toward him and wanted to kill him. 
And because of his righteous indignation over how his followers treated these little children, he then makes a point to set them straight. The text tells us then, and he said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. I want you to notice something very, very clear here. Jesus is very emphatic about the point that he's making here. You see, he doesn't simply just say, let the children come to me. He could have said that. And he doesn't just say, do not hinder them from coming to me. Right? He actually makes a point to say both statements. And I want you to notice they're contrasting statements because one is a positive statement and the other one is a negative statement. They're, they're actually opposites. Right? He says, let them come to me positively. Let them come. Right? And, but do not hinder them or get in the way. That's a negative. That's, that's the opposite side of that. And the reason why Jesus does this is because he's using parallelism to help them to see how serious he is in what he's saying here. If you remember, one of the things about about Jewish culture of the time, when we read a text, is we're always looking for repetition. Because we know when somebody repeats themselves in a text, and they use the same words or even the same ideas in succession, it was to add emphasis on what's being said. And here Jesus, in essence, is using two contrasting statements back to back to drive home the same point. Let the children come. Don't hinder them. In other words, what he's saying to them is, don't do that again. Don't you get in the way of children wanting to come to me. Don't you treat them like that, is, is the force of what he's saying here. That's what Jesus is communicating here. And he's being forceful here by repeating the same idea. He's scolding them. And he's, and he's making it clear that he loves the little children, and he will not stand for even his closest apostles to treat them this way. It's a big statement about how Jesus feels about kids, by the way. His righteous indignation prompts him to take action here, and he stands up against his own apostles over this. And then I want you to notice Jesus follows this parallel statement up with another parallel statement. He says, for, right? And when you see the word for, you can actually take that word almost always and substitute for because and then connect it with what we just said. So in essence, what he's saying is, right, is this. The reason why you shouldn't get in the way of them like this and keep them from coming to me is because to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not inherit it. enter it. Again, I want you to notice Jesus is using two similar statements. They're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. They have the same subject and idea. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and he's talking about children and their connection to the kingdom of God. And he's doing so to make an, an emphatic point. And in fact, his, his point is so emphatic here that he even throws in the expression of truly. Anytime you see him use the word truly or say truly, truly, you know Jesus is going, hey, pay attention here because I'm really telling you something very, very important. And so given that and given his use of this parallel statement to add emphasis and that he's saying, what he's saying here is really important because Jesus is making really an important statement, not about just any subject. He's not even just talking about kids here. He's making an important statement about salvation. Hear what he's saying here. To such belongs the kingdom of God. Or in other words, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. And then right after that, he says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And please don't miss this. This is foundationally important. In fact, this is one of the reasons this text is 
one of the most important in the Bible. Jesus is saying that there is a quality. There is a quality that we see in a child that we must ourselves possess in order to receive the kingdom of God, in order for us to even enter it. There must be something about children that we must be possessed, that we must possess to be, to be saved. Right? And it's, that's what Jesus is saying here. This is a staggering statement. It should grab our attention. He's saying there's something about these little kids that, that, that you need to understand, that you need to be like in order to be saved. It's an important point that Jesus is making here. That's why he's repeating himself. Right? He's talking about salvation what must we be like to be saved? What is this childlike quality then we need to possess to enter the kingdom? If it's necessary, then what, what is it that we need to actually have? Well, this right here is part of the text where we as Westerners in the 21st century get completely wrong. Much, I just want to tell, hear, what you, hear me. Much of what you've heard in your lifetime about this text is wrong. I'm not saying that arrogantly. I'm just saying that sincerely. Because our starting point for understanding this text and how we look at this is how we look at children today. How we, from our perspective, look at children today. We begin with the wrong perspective. You see, in the 21st century, Americans, we tend to value children. right? And we tend to look at children as innocent. And we look at them, even in some respects, now and more increasingly, as more noble than even adults. We look at them as even more honest. And we look at them as more sensible and even more compassionate than adults. Don't believe me? Think about this. Who is the international face of the environmental movement right now? It's not a grown-up. It's a kid. It's a teenager. right? And, and who's the face of the anti-gun movement right now? It ain't adults. It's kids. It's teenagers. And it's, or it's adults who just still look like teenagers. Right? They're lecturing us. Right? They're lecturing... They're being hoisted up to lecture adults about, about the evils of, of, of gun ownership. Who is increasingly the face of the transgender movement? Kids and teenagers. That's why that, that one little boy who's the cross-dresser is so famous right now. Politicians have figured out how to use our cultural assumptions about kids to further their political end, and they're using our, their pers- our perspectives against us because our perspectives are actually flawed in many respects. We see children from our 21st century perspective, and because of that, we tend to look at this text right here right, and bring that into our interpretation. A number of false ideas flourish from that. For instance, a good friend of mine, a person who I would stand and affirm is a believer in Christ, he just struggles with the idea of the sovereignty of God. And I remind him, I said, that really the struggle that you have with the sovereignty of God is not rooted in, in the Bible. It's just really rooted in your emotions. You just need to study who God really is. I said, you need to, to grow in your understanding of God. You need to grow in your doctrine and theology of who God is. And he pushes back on me and says, I don't need that. I don't need a big understanding of God at all. I don't need what you call a robust theology. I don't even need to be clear about, about my doctrinal understanding of God. I just come to God like a child, is what he says. I just need to come to God like a child, right? I just come to him innocent like a child, and I just say, Daddy, and he just accepts me and receives me. The same way my child instinctively knows to come to me, I instinctively know to go to God. 
So I don't need to worry about those other things. I can be ignorant, but trusting, like a child is ignorant, but trusting. You see, we, we, we tend to think that Jesus has been, when he, when he talks about kids, is, he's talking about innocence. Even ignorance. That, that, that it's about being untainted by adult knowledge. It's like trusting like a child would trust, or even being receptive like a child would be receptive. Or even be simple like a child, but hear me. That's not what Jesus is communicating here in the text. Jesus is saying, he's not saying, turn off your brain and come to me. He's not saying, suspend all your doubts and just come to me. He's not saying, set aside all your questions you might have and come to me. He's not saying, you don't ever need to grow in your theology and knowledge of me. He's not saying any of those things. You don't have to be an ignorant child. He's not saying, you need to be an ignorant child to come to me. What he's saying is actually much more essential to the gospel. What he's saying is rooted in how that culture actually saw children. You see, there's a reason why the children were looked upon in that culture as being the least important people in the society. There is a reason why they had so little value. And the reason simply is this. If there's anything you remember from today, it's this. Children were helplessly dependent. That was why they were so hated and so despised and Valued so little. Little children were in every possible conceivable way helpless and dependent on other people. That's the reason why. They had no intrinsic value of their own. Right? They could bring no resources into the relationship. They couldn't bring any money. Right? They didn't earn anything. They couldn't grow crops. They didn't make clothes. They didn't contribute anything. In fact, they couldn't even clean themselves. I mean, think about babies, right? Kent Hughes notes that every single child in the world is absolutely, completely, totally, objectively, subjectively, and existentially helpless. And because they're so helpless and can't do anything for themselves and bring anything of value to society, they are seen as a burden. They are not seen as valuable. They are seen as burdensome. Babies are not just, you know, babies for many of them are just another mouth to feed. That's why a common practice, by the way, in the Roman Empire was for unwanted children to be discarded on garbage piles and left there to die of exposure. People didn't look down on people for that. That's just what they did. In fact, there were times there were more kids thrown in the garbage pile than there were that actually were kept to be born. In fact, it was recorded in 1 AD, a husband writing to his wife. He said, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, then get rid of it. It's just how they were. Brothers and sisters... What Jesus is saying here is that's what you need to exact that's the exact quality you must have to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be helplessly dependent upon God. That's the thing he's communicating here. You must be helplessly dependent upon God to save you. That's what Jesus is saying. The only way that you enter into the kingdom is to understand that you have nothing at all to offer God. The only way that you come into the kingdom is to realize you have nothing to give him. And because of that, he owes you nothing but his judgment and wrath. You have nothing at all to contribute. Remember, Isaiah said, your very best efforts, your righteousness is but filthy rags before God. Even the best that you can possibly do, the best lifetime lived, Mother Teresa doing all that stuff is filthy rags before God. You are helplessly dependent upon God. 
Kent Hughes further says that the children of the kingdom enter it helpless, ones for whom everything must be done. God has to do everything for us. That's the gospel, by the way. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a gift of God, not by works so that anyone would boast. That's the the theme that we see continually in the gospel over and over again. That's the theme that we see in Galatians. You can contribute nothing to your salvation. Hear me. You contribute nothing to your salvation, except there's, in fact, and I wish I remembered his name. There is a Puritan that says, you can contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made salvation necessary. See, Christ had to live a perfect life because you couldn't. And he had to fulfill the law because you weren't able to. And he had to bear in his body the full wrath of God that you deserve because you couldn't bear it. And he shed his blood on the cross because it's the only way you could get your sins washed away. And he died to pay a penalty that you had no ability on your own to pay. And then he rose again, conquering both sin and death. And he ascended into heaven. Right now, he's interceding for you because you can't do it yourself. You can't plead your own case before God. And then even then, God the Father's involved because God the Father's the one who preserved his word and sent his son. He preserved his word so that you can actually hear the gospel today 2,000 years later. And gospel sent people into your life that proclaimed that word to you. Otherwise, you would never hear it. And even then, God the Holy Spirit had to come and change your heart from a heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh so that you could even hear the words and understand the gospel and repent and believe because even your faith is a gift of God. Salvation, as we've said over and over again, is what we see here, is what Christ is saying, is 100% the work of God because you are helplessly dependent upon His grace. You bring nothing to the equation. Just as the same as a baby can do nothing on its own. You can do nothing before God. That's how you come into the kingdom. As the hymn writer wrote, if I can read this without tears. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus isn't saying you need to be trusting like a child. He isn't saying that you need to be innocent like a child. He's not saying you need to be receptive like a child. He is saying you need to be helplessly dependent like a little baby. You see, the very thing that makes a person the least valuable in the first century was the primary requirement for you to enter the kingdom of God. You talk about the antithesis of what it means to be in the world and what it means to be of heaven. The very thing that the culture despised is the very requirement you had to have to get into heaven. Which means these little children that he's holding on to and touching, in, they are a living illustration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like marriage is an illustration of a relationship with Christ, children are an illustration of our part in the gospel. And I want you to notice another connection here. God loves marriage and God loves children. And because of that then, and because of that love, and because it's a visible illustration of God's love and faithfulness, then we as Christians must then stand for and protect both of them. 
By the way, that's why we at First Baptist Church are so passionate about kids. That's why we feed them. That's why we give them Christmas presents. Because I want you to hear me. We don't feed people for adults. We feed people for kids. We don't give Christmas presents away so their parents will feel better about themselves that they give them Christmas presents. We do this because we feel that kids deserve that. We give what we give because we love kids. We must protect marriage and children. As believers, we must protect the institution of marriage. We must protect children. They are the living embodiment of the gospel itself. They are helplessly dependent as we need to be before God. But with that, if a baby born in the world is a picture of the gospel and our helpless dependence upon Christ, the way a child is helplessly dependent upon his parent, then how much more is an unborn child the supreme picture of this helpless dependence? The unborn child is dependent to the greatest possible degree a person can be dependent. And they're helpless to the greatest possible degree that anybody could be helpless. But here's the thing. Like the first century, our 21st century culture hates that. That's the thing that it hates. That's why our culture says that it's a leech. That's why our culture says that it's a parasite. That's why our culture says that an unborn child is nothing but a clump of cells. There's no sense ruining your life over that. There's no sense of you giving up your college plans for that. There's no sense of you having to go get a job now and be responsible for someone else for that. Just take it and discard it. Just like the Romans did with their unwanted children. Sometimes I think people, I hear people say the world's getting worse. I say, well, maybe. I think we're just repeating our history. Jesus loves the little children, even the unborn ones, because they are made in the image of God, and they are a living portrait of the gospel. And make no mistake, God is righteously indignant over abortion. God is rightfully angry over the killing of innocent children, And hear me, the judgment of God looms over our nation. There's no other reason for why things are the way they are and why we look to the leaders we have and go, how in the world did this even happen? Christ is indignant over the mistreatment of children. And if we are like Christ, then we also ought to be. But in closing, let us remember that Jesus loves the little children. And he loves you just like one of those little children. And I encourage you to come to him continually, repeatedly, dependent upon him. In fact, that's what it means to preach the gospel to yourself, by the way. I don't know if you realize that. When you fall down in your sin, the answer is not for you to go, Lord, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, I'm going to work harder, I'm going to do more. It's like, Lord, I'm helplessly dependent upon you. Here I am again, once again. I can't fix it. I can't change it. I am who I am. Only by your grace will I change. I'm depending helplessly upon you to sanctify me. But understand, Jesus receives all who come to him and call upon his name like he did those children 2,000 years ago. If you repent and believe the gospel and come to him with nothing in your hands, but helpless dependence. 
He will save you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the clarity of your word. And I thank you for little verses like this. Three verses, Lord, that have a world of meaning. Three verses that speak volumes to our hearts and minds. Three verses, Lord God, that help us to see the clarity of the gospel. But Father, I'm going to come now. I'm going to beg for this church family. That, Lord, that we would then grow past some of the things that we have been accustomed to that we would begin to absolutely be loving and compassionate and long-suffering and caring about every person that we come in contact with, understanding even the worst is made in your image and is worthy of some form of dignity. But let us, Lord, shed that, that stereotype that says that we can never say anything. Use this people, Lord God, to go speak truth and life into the rest of this world. Use these people to then go speak in the lives of those people who need to hear the hard truth. Not just about the gospel, but, but the things that they need to do in their lives. Whether it's their addictions, or whether it's, it's their, you know, their laziness, or their lack of compassion for others, or their unwillingness to, to do what they need to do for their children and their spouses, Lord. Help us to be people who are compassionate and loving, but at the same time, who firmly tell the truth the way Jesus did. And Father, help all of us, Lord, to remember that everything that we do, we're helplessly dependent upon you. As your word says, that you are the vine and we are the branches. And apart from you, we can do what? Nothing. So help us, Lord God, as a church family to abide in you and to walk in that strength, Lord. And help us to go out of here, Lord, as people boldly proclaiming our love and grace for you because you're the one who empowers us to do so. Father, we give you the praise and the honor and glory. And I thank you for all that are gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.